Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Welcome back around. We're glad to be back with Rick and Nick Talk Flicks after a little bit of a hiatus. That's how it goes during the fall sometimes with travel and with sporting events to do. But we are so glad to be back with you and talking movies. I'm Joel Hoover. I was the one that was on travel. I'm Dave Brooks. Yes, he was indeed on travel and enjoying some nice travel. So we are back. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is back. And as ever, is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Come on out and check out a movie at the Bemidji Theater. It's a great place to go and catch a film. Check out their specials that they've got for their different nights with the $5.50 nights that they have on Tuesdays. And then school nights are still going, Dave, Thursday as well? night, school nights. You don't have to be a student. You can be faculty. You can be admin as long as you can prove that you're involved at the school, whatever school. I don't know if that's out-of-town schools, but why not? So, yeah, school nights, Thursday nights. Bring your ID, your school ID, along with you, and you'll be able to get that discount there as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a great deal. And, of course, the renovations that were done this summer have been awesome. And it's oh, yeah. a great place to go check out a movie, the Bemidji Theater. So tell Missy and crew we say hi. Indeed, please tell them we said hello because we love going there for movies and we love having them as our podcast sponsor. We have had a little bit of time off, and so it's a good time to touch base again here, Dave, on what's been happening in current events. Not just all oh, the Eras Tour movie is doing really <laughs> well, which it is. It really is. What a shock on and that one. Do you know that movie doesn't play on Mondays, Tuesdays, or Wednesdays? Because Taylor Swift knows her audience base. They've got homework to do. I don't want you going to the movie on Monday night. You've got homework. Well, I mean, she loves us. I mean, if I had homework. But I mean, are you aware of that? It's true. I, I was not aware of that. You can't no. see that movie unless it is Thursday through Sunday because it's homework night. That is, I, I won't lie, that's actually kind of cool. That's really neat and really interesting. <laughs> I don't think I had realized yeah. that. So. Yeah. I've never heard of that in a movie look before. Into that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's wild. So, anyway, that movie has done great, regardless of the box office. I mean, that concert tour has done great. Heads it's- up, by the way, if you go see it in the theaters, where a lot of people are finding out is that people are going to attend this on the big screen like it was a concert. That means standing up in the aisles like you would at a concert. Oh, my goodness. So, if you want to sit and watch the movie, just be aware of who you're behind. You might be somewhat inconvenienced. I'm just putting it out there. Thanks for the heads up for all of us, Dave. You're so. welcome. I, I have <laughs> not gone and found this out on my own. I'm just saying. Nor have I. It's it's getting out there. So It had the biggest opening of a concert film ever, though, and by a huge margin. Oh, it yeah. Out, this is it, the Michael Jackson concert film, uh, the posthumous one for him from back in 2009, but enormous opening for it. So outside of that, of course, the big current events topic from the last time that we got a chance to record a, a podcast episode was that the strikes were going on. Strikes, plural. That's now down to singular, as the Writers Guild of America was able to reach a deal, and a deal they were pretty happy with overall with how it worked out there with the the studios. It looked like the Screen Actors Guild was starting to make similar inroads, and then they hit another impasse, and now they are back on opposite sides of the picket line once again. Well, the part that I'm not understanding is that the writers and the actors had very similar issues with the studios. Namely, it was um, you want to get residuals for streaming, which just really hadn't factored in because streaming was in its infancy, and you just didn't understand that. And the other one was was AI. And that got figured out with the writers. But for some reason, even though they've already figured it out with the writers, they're having a problem with what the studios are proposing to the actors on the same topics. So I don't know why. I'm not understanding is probably the better way to put it, why there is a disconnect. But it's gotten to the point where they've left the table a couple of different times. So I don't know why the studios are playing one game with the writers, which worked. And they're doing another game with the actors, which is not working. Because they had gotten back to the table again. Yeah. Just about after the writer's deal was reached. But now, for whatever reason, like you said, a little bit of ambiguity as far as 
we here on the outside are concerned, they are back away from the table and have backed away once again. So positive news is that if you're talking non if you're talking even scripted shows, you can get back to those. That's reality TV that is scripted. They don't have to reuse Jeopardy questions. You can write stories and movies and so forth. You can develop stories. But when it comes to filming them, if you have an actor that's in the guild, now you've got a problem. You can certainly do reality-based things, but you can't get De Niro, let's say, in front of a camera because that's not going to happen. And the same goes with getting them on talk shows. As long as they're not promoting something, there are guild rules. Drew, Drew Barrymore is finding that out. Um, yeah, so we're we're getting to the end, but we're not quite there yet. But there's hope. The grind continues. I'm surprised. I honestly thought this whole thing might grind into 2024, but half of it's done, but now they're playing around with the actors. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know what it's going to take to get them back to the table. It's not like there's another deal that can be done elsewhere that would help. So Maybe if they used what they came up with with the writers as a template and just tweak it for what the actors might need. I bet you they get this thing done. If it worked for the writers, generally the same concerns are across, not exactly, but there's the biggest issues are generally comparable. If they could figure that out and make it work for the other side too, better things. I would have thought that's where we were getting to. It seemed like it was anyway. going to end really quick, and then it just it didn't happen. Yeah. So hopefully by the time we do our next podcast, something that's going to happen, it'll get done, it'll get ratified, and we're back to work. Let's hope. That's the spirit. Yeah. So we'll look forward to that for next time. Anything else currently? Not currently, but what we're going to talk about today is going to be one of those. We always forget to say it up front, is there are going to be spoilers to some extent here, even though our topic are things that didn't really happen. There are going to be some spoilers on things that did happen, so just be prepared. If we start talking about a movie or a show or something that interests you and you haven't seen it, be prepared. There could be a spoiler spoiler forthcoming, so you are hereby warned. Yeah, that is our usual disclaimer, so please do keep that in mind as we kick off the show today. And as we talk about the what-ifs, the what-could-have-beens. It didn't happen, though. It didn't happen. Denied. But it was talked about, or nope. it was it was more than talked about in some of these cases. Yeah. It was a concrete reality or a planned reality, and then, speaking of being taken off the table, it was. It, it was just that. It would be a cool topic down the road. There's any role, any character of any movie, there's going to be no less than, say, five people that are up for the role. Only one person usually gets it. That's a whole other thing. Um, there are shows and movies that get you know written up, they get drawn up, they get to some extent, and it never happens. For every one of those, there's a nickel. I mean, there's a million of those. We had to get to a point where this was happening. This was done. I mean, footage was shot. Costumes were made. Sets were built. In some cases, entire movies were made, including the edits and the music score and everything, and it just disappeared like a toot in the wind. So this is something else. It just <laughs> didn't happen. And not just about shows, but I mean, we don't want to go down the negative route, but people that were promoted as being the next big thing that just kind of just didn't happen. We don't. That's kind of negative, but for a lot of different reasons, we will touch base on it, but not too hard. But this is the stuff that just, it just didn't happen. It was, it was happening. And then someone yanked the chair out from under them. That is what this one is about. Because you and I love this series, and and you especially have put the first movie of it around or just about at the very top of your favorites list, Dave, it makes what almost was for Indiana Jones so significant because Tom Selleck was in line to be Indy. He had it. The bullwhip. He had it. And then Magnum P.I. became a reality and the rest became history, didn't it? But that... That is an enormous what-if, and I think about Tom Selleck and that famous mustache of his, and and it is, it is so strange to think about, so strange. This is before my time, so it, it's just, I mean, what we know to be reality is what we know to be reality. It's just so odd to think about the possibility that he very nearly could have been Indiana Jones. Well, here's, in order to really understand how the story comes to be like this, you need to understand how... 
in this case, how TV shows are done. He had already shot and done what's called a pilot episode. So this brand new TV show, Magnum P.I., they do basically one episode, maybe it's a big episode, and they just produce it. And then they give it around to the TV networks. And if they like it, they say, yeah, I really like this pilot episode. Let's go. And they make a show out of it. He had already done the pilot, but not the show. So now this thing is getting piloted around. He'd already done it. Now he's technically free to do other things unless the pilot gets picked up. So he's just done the pilot. Now he's talking to Spielberg and George Lucas. Well, we got this archaeological movie. All right, so he tests for it. He pretty much gets the role with the caveat that if Magnum P.I. is picked up, then he's not going to be able to do it. Well, he got the role, and the caveat still sticks. It's not like he was a contract breach. But once it was CBS that picked up the Magnum P.I. show. Once they started getting wind that this guy's getting winded around, he might get this, you know, he's teaming up with Spielberg and George Lucas. And at this point, their names alone were enough to get some serious notice. That really piqued up their interest. Well, maybe we should do this. And then Magnum P.I. became a show. And when that came across, Selleck had to pull out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There are lots of videos that you could see. They're on YouTube. They're on the special extra edition of the DVDs. You could see him doing readings with potential castmates or actually were casted, like Karen Allen. You could see them working together. But then they had to go we got to recast this role. Was it strange, like for you watching that and seeing those readings that he was doing, was it weird to watch that and to see that it's Tom Selleck who's the guy doing it? Sure, but no more than anything else. You know, we could do an entire episode of people that were up for roles. Kurt Russell almost got another Harrison Ford part with Han Solo. He was really close. It just it, So when you watch any role that you know well, the James Bond auditions, you're going to see Sam Neill from Jurassic Park reading one of those. That always Henry is interesting. Henry Cavill comes sure. to mind. I was just seeing a picture sure. of that. There's yeah. a hundred of those. So it's it just kind of fits into that category. But to see him wearing, maybe not the fedora, but wearing a leather jacket and some kind of a hat and acting with Karen Allen is kind of interesting because you're doing the dialogue from the movie, but they're just in some random room. Yeah, it's interesting. It's different. But Harrison Ford has such a quirky thing about him. That's just part of Harrison Ford. I don't think it's his acting. I think it's just Harrison Ford. But that becomes part of any character. His ruggedness, There's that. Say? There's that, but he's got... You'll see it when he's sitting on stage with Conan O'Brien or Jimmy Fallon, and he's just got these quirks about what he does. You'll see the same quirks in Han Solo. You'll see the same in Jack Ryan. The you'll smirk. see a lot of yeah. the Harrison Fordisms, you know, and it's just that's just the way he is. Mel Gibson's got those. You know, Clint Eastwood has got those. It's just who they are that become part of the character because that's what they are. You know, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, or Harrison Ford, Han Solo, and and uh, Indiana Jones. They all kind of look alike, you know, because that's what who the you. Can, it's just kind of how it works. It's who it is? It yeah, is. It's, it's him. It's him being in that role, and it's what we know. In that role. This yeah. one in particular, we brought into this show because of all the, this guy almost got the roles. Of all those stories, this is the one that's kind of the the, the big one on the he tip of the iceberg. He had the role. It that's was, the he, thing. He was yeah. Indiana Jones until Magnum P.I. came up. And I'm not complaining for him. He has got a pretty good career. Magnum was a huge show. I don't like the reboot so much. He's never been a part of it, but it, it was a great It worked for show. everybody. That's yeah. the bottom line. It worked out well all around. Yeah, yep. no complaints. It's it's okay. And, you know, I think Harrison Ford nailed it. I think Harrison Ford brought something to the role that Selleck couldn't have. But you can't say, it's thank goodness this happened rather than that. Who knows what it would have done when it was all put together. You just need the perfect ingredients. And maybe Harrison Ford was that last bit of yeast to make it rise. Who knows? There are occasional moments when movies are impacted by real-life events in different yeah. ways. We're going to talk about a different example of this later on in this list, but Scream 3 was impacted by a real-life event and a very serious one. So those that have seen Scream 3, what you end up seeing on screen is not at all what they were starting to come up with. Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, who were pretty much the creators of the original four Scream movies, it's kind of gone off in a different direction now. But what a lot of the word is, they were going to bring back Matthew Lillard's character of Stu, who had the TV land on his head. And there's still a push to try to bring him back even now. But they were going to bring back his character. Somehow he survived the TV incident in the end of the first movie. Uh, so he was going to come back and he was going to do something that was kind of, um, maybe not everyone has seen this movie, but there was a movie from the late 80s called Heathers. Christian Slater and Winona Ryder were, uh, without getting into too many details, they were going to plant a bomb and blow up the school. It was going to be a school massacre in the movie Heathers. Then you get into the mid-late 90s, 
Columbine happened in 1999, which was about the time that they were getting ready to go into production for Scream 3. And uh, Wes Craven and Kevin Williams said, you know, I don't think this is the best route to go. And they just tore the story completely apart and restarted from scratch. And what you wound up seeing is now what you see on screen. They're going to do a movie based on the first event, and now it's the first, so on and so forth. It totally changed. But if the Columbine incident hadn't happened, screamed, or I mean, it was an inevitability something was going to come along, because I hate to say it, it's become a thing now. Um, and hopefully it stops being a thing. It's just this is not something we condone at all. But it significantly changed what Scream Three was going to be, and that's part of the reason why the movie came out so far after Scream Two. I think it came out in two thousand one, something like that. Yeah, having an understanding of what what's going on outside of the bubble of making the film and trying to have a good gauge of that and. I'm sure they're thinking about what's going to get people in seats and about what's going to bring people out. Like, I'm sure there's the the financial side of it. There's the marketing side. Like, they're they're thinking about all of that too. Of hey, we need to find something that's going to work for people to come. But it's also nice to see at least some kind of appreciation for let's have let's have the right kind of touch here to this of knowing, engaging. What's going to work based on what's going on in real life, too? Yeah, you're not always going to be able to hit on that, and I don't think movies have always been able to fully strike it right on that. But you can at least appreciate that there was there there was an understanding and acknowledgement of that. Yeah, and sometimes you watch a movie now, and it's hard to watch because it came out, and since then things have changed for whatever reason it is. I mean, Heather's is about eventually trying to blow up a school and sort of a school massacre. But that stuff just wasn't happening then. It might be a harder movie to watch now. It may not have aged so well just because of other things around it that's not the fault of the movie. But this happened, and they were coming together with a storyline, and then real life happened. And you know what? I don't think we need to go down that route. I think that's happening on TVs right now. Let's just totally rip it apart and start from scratch. Do you want to talk about our other example of uh, a film that was impacted by what was going on in the current events and got changed in a big way? Because this, this did shift quite a bit with this movie, and that's Zero Dark Thirty. Absolutely. Um, Which explains why that movie came out so quickly after all that happened with Bin Laden and and killing Bin Laden. So Zero Dark Thirty, obviously, if you're aware of the movie, most people are. It did win Best Picture. It came out in 2010. I want to say it was um, large. It was going to be about something a little bit different, but it was about Osama Bin Laden. But as this original version and the of the movie, for Bin Laden. Yeah, and remember now, all of a sudden, one day we get word they found him, they ki- they killed him, and it's over. This was going to be a totally different movie because a few years before that, just uh, shortly after we invaded Afghanistan, he got into the Tora Bora mountain regions. There's a lot of caves and a lot of ways to get out. Without getting into great detail, you can Google the story and find out really what happened. But long story short, Bin Laden and his crew, they got away. They escaped from the Tora Bora mountains. So Catherine Bigelow and her crew, this was what Zero Dark Thirty was going to be about because there wasn't anything after that. Nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew if he was still around, and there were just questions that maybe he's not even alive anymore. He's got kidney problems, and he could have died from kidney failure. How do you lug a machine around for dialysis from cave to cave? Nobody knew. And this is what the story was going to be about. And they did all this research, they did all this groundwork, and they are just about ready to go in front of cameras when all of a sudden, at the time, President Obama comes out and says, well, we got him. Well, now you can't really do the Tora Bora movie because Bin Laden may have gotten away, but only temporarily. Now they got him. Catherine Bigelow and her crew were able to really use a lot of the, they'd already done the heavy lifting. They got most of the work. They did, they had all these contacts already, and now you're getting a hold of these contacts to find out what happened next. And the story changed enough to the point, they had such good source intel from the people that were there. There were official or unofficial congressional hearings about how did they find this out, and it came out so quick after the actual incident, less than a year, I think it was. Pretty With an close. accurate depiction that they were able to give. Exceptionally accurate. Yeah. It was ridiculous. But the whole movie was going to be a completely different thing until real life changed, and it wasn't that he got away. It's that he got away, and now we got him. Doesn't it kind of reflect that, though, when you think back on the movie, and it's been several years since I've gotten to watch it, but when you think back on the movie, you kind of see that a little bit because the, the search is not going very well for a large chunk of that movie and you see all that came with that and the challenges and 
the controversies and conflicts that came with that. But then they get that break, and then they are able to to start piecing it together then. So they made that shift pretty seamlessly, it feels like, reflecting on the movie. But you can kind of see that shift now a lot more clearly of how they were able to then pivot based on what happened in in current events and real life events. Well, and even as they were working on Tora Bora, well, what happened after Tora Bora? Those questions were being asked. Well, you know, we think maybe it wasn't until they had that eureka moment, which was shortly before the raid that went and got them, but that changed everything. Prior to that eureka moment, it's all just maybes. It's not, well, you know, maybe, and one of the theories had been working that maybe he's not in a cave in Afghanistan. Maybe he's in a residential area like in Pakistan, which is exactly where they found him. But it's interesting how sometimes the tail wags the dog and that this movie's going to be ABC. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. And it totally changes everything. And uh, the fact that they had – this movie was almost so made that everything was there, all the contacts, all the sources, and the pieces still kind of worked. You just kind of needed to shift them around, change the focus a little bit, and change the last act entirely. But all of the rest of it, it was all there. So it was very interesting. And it wasn't just thrown together. I mean, it won Best Picture. Best Director, too. It was it was an example of how this is done and how it is done well. Yeah, and making an, an adjustment and a pivot on the fly then. Huge adjustment. Well, sometimes adjustments get made because you realize that a plan, a very sprawling plan you may have, perhaps will not work as well as you want it to. And that brings us to the failed dark universe of Universal. And I remember when this was announced and and just how sweeping and sprawling this plan was to have these monster films that were going to be either made or remade. And I'm sure that they, they looked at some of what was done with like Godzilla in the mid-2010s and the early 2010s and went, hey, I think we can do this and, and pull this off with a large slate of films. The Mummy was going to be kind of the flagship and was going to, to get it started. And then when the mummy bombed, everything came apart with the Dark Universe. And it came apart very, very fast, even though they had such plans to do so much more with this. And ultimately, it came to nothing. I think in a way, the blueprint was probably being laid out by Marvel and the Avengers. And about the time that this was being done, uh, or at least at least on a blueprint, blueprint status, I think at least the first Avengers movie had happened, and maybe the second. So you had all these individual characters that Marvel had. The rights to you've got you know Captain America you've got Thor you got all of these well Universal has been trying to they've got these the rights to these incredible dark characters Frankenstein Count Dracula the Wolfman the Mummy they've all been made they've all been remade and in different iterations but what if you can do something with these classic movie monsters somewhat akin to what the Incredible Hulk and and Captain America are doing with these Avengers this dark universe why couldn't we do that. And that's what it was. They had their eye on the final prize, and I think, this is my own opinion now, I think that was the goal. That was what their eyes were on. They were building the house, but they weren't really focused on the brick and mortar that makes up the house. Yeah. And so we're going to get this great cast, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. Okay, that's great, but now you need to build it. You need to make sure you're not using the bad drywall that's going to have mold in it, and you need to make sure it's going to be structurally supportive. And all right, well, let's just look at the mummy alone, because there were other plants. They were going to have Jekyll and Hyde with Russell Crowe playing both roles. There was going to be the Invisible Man with Johnny Depp playing both roles before the Elizabeth Moss version came around, which is a whole other story. Very good movie, by the way. But, but a different movie. A very different movie, but that was an example of a movie well done. And the mummy... If they had built just this one movie and made it good, they would have been just fine. Look at the first Iron Man movie, which some people consider, even though The Incredible Hulk came first, or Hulk came first, whichever the uh, um, Richard, uh, uh, the uh, Eric Bana version was, which was the first one to kick off the cinematic universe for the Marvel universe. It's debatable which one it was, but they were Iron Man in particular. It was good. It stood on its own. You didn't need to worry about whether it linked to the next thing. But when they did The Mummy... I think they were so focused on how it was going to intermesh with the other movies rather than let's make it a good movie. They had a good cast. Sophia Boutella, who plays the mummy character, is is good. People like or don't like Tom Cruise. He's not my favorite actor, but he's in, generally speaking, good movies. This one might be the exception. So when the movie's not so good, it's harder to take Tom Cruise because they were worried about how the whole house is going to come together and not this first basement floor foundation that they're building. 
And when it just fell apart and it wasn't very good and why move forward, they decided let's cut our losses. But I mean, it was an embarrassingly so. They had a group shot of all these actors that were going to be in these movies and all of them, they're going to come together on the big screen and it never happened. Russell Crowe, Johnny Depp, they had... They had all those plans. They had so much that was that was in the works to be able to make it all happen. To especially at a time where you had these superhero films that were being released, and with the MCU getting put together and DC stumbling its way into their own their own team with the Justice League, you had an attempt, I think, here to to say let's go and pivot in a different direction by going with the quote-unquote dark universe, with going with these these characters, these these monster characters or these, these characters who have a lot of complications about them. Let's try to build something that is going to that is going to center around all of that. It just it just did not have, like you said, the right foundation, the right plan, like the MCU, to be able to make it come off and and ultimately, when you when you have a bad flop, that like like they did with the mummy, it was enough for them to go, okay, we're scared off from this. We're not going to try to keep this powered forward. And I I think that was maybe the reality check of, hey, this is not as mapped out as we would perhaps want it to be. Yeah, and the thing that really kind of grabs me is they didn't try again. You know, DC has had yeah. issues. They've had problems. They succeed and then they fail again. But then they keep trying. Universal, they had this bad thing happen, and they said, we're done. I don't know how far or even if into production any of the others got. You'd think something was done somewhere, maybe, but I haven't heard anything official saying that it was put in front of cameras. Oh, there are stories and there are costume designs and all that, but how far did they actually get before the plug was pulled? I don't have a good answer for that. It seems to be under kind of lock and key, but the mummy was the big one that dropped. That's the surprising thing. Maybe they looked at dollar signs and said, we can't afford this to flop. Sometimes it's movies. Sometimes it's individuals who just for whatever reason don't stick in the mainstream. And we've looked for those those fresh faces who are going to be the next big thing when it comes to acting. Or the, those mainstays who, when they are in a film, you're just planning to go see it because so-and-so is in it. You know, you talked about Harrison Ford earlier. He had a lot of that power at the height of his career and, and could do that. We've seen... Tom Hanks have that ability to be able to do that. We have seen we've seen a variety of actresses who can hold that kind of power. I mean, Scarlett Johansson, I think, has that kind of pull. You know, somebody along those lines who there there's tons of examples. Meryl Streep, you know, somebody who's had a lot of pull in that regard with the, all the success that she's had. You can think of a lot of examples, but you can also think of a lot of examples of those who are kind of expected to be next up, next in line to be able to do that, and who for whatever reason just haven't been able to really do that. Well, and there's and we don't want to stick too close to this because I certainly don't want to run the realm of cruel, you know, looking at people that, you know, they gave it a shot and for whatever reason it didn't happen. We're not, we're not going to go too far down this realm. But And hey, their careers are still in progress. It's sure. not as if this is the, the final say on what their career is. Sure. It's just what it's been to this point. Sure, sure. Sometimes it's not about that they've got amazing talent. Sometimes they've got a good, fresh face that's going to draw you in. It's going to sell some magazine covers. It's going to make, attractive the, face. make yeah. the teen girls or guys go crazy for them, and sometimes it just it doesn't happen. Taylor Lautner comes to mind, um, and we're not picking on him in particular. We're just kind of pointing it out. He came out, and uh, I think it was the Twilight movies where he really kind of broke out, and he was going to be the next big thing. He was starting to date Taylor Swift, who was not – the Taylor Swift that we know now, where she was an economic, holy moly, but she was on the up and coming it was really still a quick. big deal. Oh, she was yeah. still a name, absolutely. And then it just, it didn't happen. His acting was okay. He picked some bad movies when he got away from the Twilight movies, yeah. and it, it kind of dried up for him very, very quickly. Um, and that was what it was. Sometimes it's about following in the footsteps of somebody who's come before. Scott Eastwood, whose father, Clint, very well known as an actor and a director, and Scott Eastwood also a really you know a good looking guy, and he's got a rugged you know sensibility about him. He's had a couple of big movies, as they say in pro wrestling. They gave him a couple of pushes, but he wasn't really able to get it, to get that grab and to get people to really. Yeah, he's a good looking guy. Well, what about the rest? Eh. And yeah, it doesn't really mean you. Romantic gotta... dramas are kind of where he's yeah shown up most frequently here, trying to get his career launched. Yeah. yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that it doesn't 
work out in the way you plan it out. That's kind of one of my favorite quotes from John Lennon. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. But, you know, good for them for trying things out. Um, Sometimes people don't work out because they might just kind of walk away or there might be issues behind the scenes. When um, high school, not High School Musical, but um, uh, Glee was big on Fox, one of the standouts was Leah Michelle, and then you start hearing behind the scenes stories. It's not so flattering. She was looked at. Boy, when she steps away from this show, she's going to be the next big thing. She's going to be like David Caruso. Except David Caruso didn't really work out when he stepped away from NYPD Blue. He just kind of vanished. And Leah Michelle, people didn't want to deal with all the stuff. For, yeah. for those and the Catherine Heigels, if you can't smile and be nice with the people that you're working with, then it's not going to – you look nice today, by the way, Hoof. Well, thank you, Dave. There's an example yeah, of how do to do well. it better. Yeah, exactly. So it didn't really work out for them. And sometimes people just walk away. They just, you know, I don't like this. This isn't working for me. I think I want to do something different. I'll add this, too. The shadow of somebody significant who you're related to can be big, like Scott Eastwood has oh, yeah. perhaps experienced a little – Sometimes the shadow of a franchise that you've been attached to can sure. be significant as well. Because when I saw this list, I also thought of Daisy Ridley. Yeah. Because she has experienced that, I think, with Star Wars. Fair or unfair? I, I think it's been mostly unfair with what she's experienced there. Like, and, and the critiques that have been there on the Star Wars sequel series, I think, are very justified. I think they are harsh on Daisy Ridley. Um, and, and others. And her role. And others, definitely, too. But I, I think for her... John Boyega is definitely part of that as well. I think I think he's been finding finding his footing. I think a little bit outside of of the Star Wars realm. Daisy Ridley, it's just been it's been kind of a non-starter for her, and I think that's been kind of tough because she's got talent. She has talent. The Ray character, I think, was just too good. Like it was too well put together of a like well put together being like there was no there was no challenge. There was no development there was no the characters got to go through a lot and that that puts the actor in a position where they can really showcase their talents then I didn't think there was really enough of that for her there and then the critiques that the sequel series got I think uh, put her in a in a tough light there then when I don't think she totally deserved that no I agree I think when you're talking about an actor or an actress that's being lined up to be the next big thing but it doesn't happen. Well, why is that? There's a lot of reasons. It's just the audiences aren't grabbing with you for reasons that are never really fully determined. Sometimes it's not your fault at all. You just were in a couple of bad movies that weren't your fault. You did a good job in them, but sometimes there's problems behind the scenes. Sometimes there's going to be drug and alcohol problems. Lindsay Lohan comes to mind with that. An amazing talent, but it just wasn't Amanda worth it Bynes, anymore. Amanda sadly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but I also think of this, too, that a start like that or one that kind of peters out can be followed by a comeback later think about the 1930s and where Catherine Hepburn's career was where she essentially hit a wall and was viewed as you know it, it seemed like she was kind of on her way but then was unimpressive and the career comeback that she found and was able to get on starting with a few um, oddball comedies that then turned into much, much more than just that. And those are the ones we root for. Robert Downey Jr. What an amazing career he had, lost, and got back. Um, Mickey Rooney also made a big comeback. And he had not done the movie The Wrestler. I don't know what he'd be doing. But he always had talent. That was never up for debate. He was being looked at as being the next Brando. And he just totally fell apart. I mean, Robert Downey Jr., the drug and alcohol problems, he spent time in prison. And got out, and he had enough people that he'd worked with before that believed in him and said, I will sponsor you and help you and make you through this. And it worked. He got up. He got more reputable. He was able to get insured. And he was able to get into films. And then the Marvel Universe came along. And I mean, and more than that, too. But wow, what an amazing talent and what an amazing come from behind. Quick correction. I think you confused Mickey Rooney and Mickey Rourke Mickey there Rourke. with the wrestler. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm with the sorry. wrestler. But Mickey Rourke, my Mickey bad. Mickey Rooney had his own uh, ebbs yeah. and flows with his career. But yeah, Mickey Rourke there with the wrestler. My bad. Yeah. My no, bad. You're, you're right. You're good. I was like, you got me, man. Wait a second. I think I know what he means here. I thought Mickey but... Rooney just danced the soft shoe. Oh, gosh, no. He was into stuff. <laughs> Sometimes you get a movie that will get to some degree of done. Now, this is where we kind of draw the line. For every one of any, we're going to do this movie, man, and it exists to some degree on paper and it never goes beyond that. That's maybe an interesting episode we can get down the road of later. Yeah. This goes further. Money was spent. Sets were built. Cameras were rolled to some extent. And then 
dot, dot, dot. Now, sometimes they get a start on a movie and for some reason it gets shut down or something. Rarely you get the example of a movie that is absolutely completely done in pretty much all ways, shape, and form, and it's sitting on a shelf ready to be screened, and it just never does. Those very much interest me. Yeah, we've referenced Batgirl before, not in the too distant past either, because this was last year that this movie was on the way, was fully prepared, and then the bombshell dropped that the entire project was being dropped. Like, it was... It was scrapped off the table, done, even though they had pretty much everything finished on it or or close to being finished on it. And it had been put on paper and had been more than on paper. It was now actually getting put and prepared and done. And then they just decided, no, we're not going to go through with it. There are times where a movie will get made and somebody at the studio, uh, an executive, will take a look at it and say, I don't like this, it's not good. And there will have to be some kind of a retooling of it, a re-edit or something, maybe reshoots, something. But it'll get released. And sometimes when it gets drastic, it is to the detriment of the movie. Did, this you, is did one... you ever get a clear indication with Batgirl on what the sticking point was or why they decided to pull the plug on it? Nobody has ever been so specific and articulate about it, but there's two stories that are going around. One is that it was to a point where it wasn't all that good and it wasn't salvageable and an edit wouldn't fix it and reshoots would be way too expensive. And the other one was they had a change in leadership with these with the comic books, DC Comics, behind the scenes at Warner Brothers. And where they're going to go from here, this did not fall in line with it. But if you think about it, parts of this did show up in a movie, The Flash, that also had its own issues, and that's a whole other story. We've talked about it. But one of the common threads here is Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne Batman also shows up in Batgirl, the same version that he shows up in The Flash. And all that was supposed to be kind of quiet and the secret in the background, but when the deal with The Flash went down, they needed to promote somebody, and they weren't going to promote Ezra Miller. So Michael Keaton, that secret kind of got let out of the bag so that they had somebody to bring out onto the talk show couches. But the same thing was going to happen with with Batgirl. J.K. Simmons, who you know is uh, uh, J.R.R. Jonasson from the Spider-Man movies, he was playing basically Commissioner Gordon. Brendan Fraser was going to be the bad guy. Uh, Mayflower or something? Firefly? Something like that? But Leslie Grace was going to be Barbara Gordon Batgirl in this movie and then they just decided nope. But this was going to come out at the same era where movies were coming out day and date release on the big screen and since we're talking Warner Brothers at the time would have been HBO Max. Now just Max. It was going to come out on both streaming and theaters same day. You'd think maybe they'd go the same route as The Flash which you know got out in theaters, bombed, they quietly released it on Max. You can see it now. Um this movie is never going to see the light of day, but I don't know how long that is going to last. At some yeah. point, it will come out. Yeah, Peter Safran and James Gunn made a real point to kind of establish themselves as the new leadership of DC with that decision. But it does raise questions about, what, was this was this kind of their way of trying to pilot the the new plan forward I don't, for DC? Or, I if, it tru- or if it that. truly was a movie that was just not going to be not going to be worth it not going to be successful and and to not even make it salvageable that's that's quite a quite a statement to say to say that or to go that far how much do you think it costs to make a superhero movie i mean it's not a dollar 99 it's not cheap there was money spent on actors yeah. and costumes and film i mean we're talking i'm just off the top of my head probably somewhere in the 100 you know 150 million maybe 200 million dollar range somewhere in there maybe probably in a saturated market where you are trying to have something that stands out too and that's worth keeping in mind as we are watching the superhero film industry and tv extended along with that starting to feel the effects of that saturation here in the last few years. So I can't imagine that if uh, James Gunn and crew say, yeah, it's not really going to fit with our aesthetic, we don't want to release it. James, I'm sorry, that's $150 million we need back. I'm sorry. Think of it as this. For what you're going to build, this doesn't count. We're going to release it anyway, and then we can start from there once this movie's out, but we need to make some money. Daddy needs some money. There's a lot of other examples of made or partially made movies that are out there too or, or plans that have been on the table. I mentioned to you Gambit. I mean, there. Speaking of superhero movies, there were plans that it was pre-production for Gambit that we heard it's going to be Channing Tatum. He's going to be stepping into that role. Never happened over the last few years. But there have been others that that have actually gotten closer that that were in the midst of filming or in the midst of they they had it actually put down and 
there's, just never worked out. There's one that's legendary, and I think when you when you hear why, maybe the reason why we've never actually seen this movie is probably not. It makes sense. Jerry Lewis did a movie about the Holocaust called The Clown Who Cried. And all the details, who really knows, but it's about a clown in the, in the Nazi Holocaust. And it seems like an attempt at a somber comedy, kind of like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, something, something. I don't know. It's From what legend has, the movie is completely made and has been screened for Jerry Lewis and executives. And it the never, day the clown cried. There you go. Yeah. And has never seen the light of day beyond that. So I got to think that's probably something to do with it's probably not that good of a movie or the subject is, you know, maybe you made it for you. Good for you. Vanity Project. But let's let's not ever let anybody see this movie. This is interesting. I'm I'm seeing this that Lewis submitted an incomplete print to the Library of Congress under an agreement it not be screened until 2024. Interesting. Very interesting. Had not heard that. Well, we'll see what happens in the next year and a half. Yeah, we'll see. Um, there was talk for a while before we got into the Prometheus movies, which are you know prequels of the Alien movies. Neil Blomkamp, who had done District 9, had come up with an idea complete with artwork. He had done a movie with Sigourney Weaver, talked to her about it. She was interested about the idea that they were going to do another Alien movie that was instead going to be a direct sequel to Aliens, the sequel, which was the 1986 James Cameron movie, and disregard everything that had come after that. So Alien 3 and so forth never was going to happen according to this. People were Wouldn't not, that have been nice? You know, a lot of people thought that would have been good. Alien 3 isn't a horrible, horrible movie, but it definitely derails the train in a lot of ways. But some of the great characters you came to love in the second movie, just arbitrarily, eh, just done. Right at the beginning of the movie. Right at the beginning. Yeah. And it just, people weren't happy about that and other reasons. So let's try to reverse course. Let's pick it up where we left off at the end of the crowd pleaser that was Aliens, the second Alien movie. And let's go from there. Now, story details have not really fully been released. There's little glimmers that have come out, but there was enthusiasm about this. But then it came down to who really is kind of the gatekeeper of the Alien franchise, Ridley Scott, who directed the first one, decided he wanted to get back in the game, and he didn't want some competing Alien movie, and he ended up doing Prometheus, which I'm not really a fan of. Which I am more of a fan of. It's a beautiful movie, but it just, if you try to think about it intelligently at all, blood shoots out your nose. Well, the problem is it established a lot of interesting threads in the mythology of the series, and then never fully tied those threads off with what followed then in Alien Convent. Well, and the proof is in the pudding. They were going to do three movies. Alien Convent was the second one. And then the third one, they're not making the third one because the first two, eh. So I, I have a little vindication there. But anyway, there was this Aliens 2 that was going to come out or they were going to make it. and or Covenant, uh, that Alien Covenant, that's what I meant. Yeah, it didn't happen. Uh, so it's that's going to be a, a what could have been. But fans really wanted to see it. Will it ever come back around? Will it ever see the light of day? They have filmed a new movie that's coming out next summer, which apparently Ridley Scott just screened and said he really likes it. So wait, there's a TV series from the Alien universe. So this, there's movement here. But will this Neil Bloomkamp sequel to Aliens ever see the light of day in some form, shape, video game maybe? I don't know. But stay tuned. There was... Would be kind of cool if since, it would. Yeah. Again, in theory. There was... Um, since it is close to Halloween time, there was work on a brand new Friday the 13th movie. We'll just say real quick, which would have been the 13th Friday the 13th movie, Friday by the, the way. Friday the 13th, 13th. Technically. But it was almost going to be kind of a reboot, recamp, and I believe it was people were showing up on set to film it. I that mean, would have pe- been quite a camp title to go with something like that. But yeah, they were going to do very 80s, very meta, very retro. And it was, the word I've heard the most thrown around as far as the story was, it looks fun. It looks good. But they, I think it got so close to filming. I don't know if a camera rolled or not, but I mean, it was two minutes away from that happening. People were on set, ready to go. And ready, set, and cut. We're just not doing this. And that was it. It just didn't happen. So Go what, home, everybody. There's, there is a Friday the 13th lawsuit that is unrelated to why this movie didn't happen. This is a whole different thing. Um, but it's interesting. It got that close and it had that much buzz around it that was positive and it just disappeared. Why? There really isn't an answer. But it's interesting enough to note. And one real more quick thing. Revenge of the Nerds. They made, what, three of those movies, I think? But the 84 one is a classic. It has not aged well because things have changed a little bit. One scene in particular. So there was a remake to some degree that they were going to make. And they filmed 
the estimates are a quarter to half of it. And then one day they just outright shut it down. And that was it. And they everyone went home and it's just in whatever pieces it's in, packed up and put away in a warehouse like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's it. Why exactly? Did something happen? <laughs> Did funding dry up? Did somebody say, wait, you Did can't- Did they do fi-. a survey? Yeah. Don't know. Nobody, it's kind of mm-hmm. tight-lipped. But money was spent. They filmed a quarter to half of the movie before they just, yeah, we're done. And that's it. And that was five plus years ago. Yeah. So there's a couple things. There's a lot of, and there's more of those. We could go down this road forever. But things, money spent, footage shot, and shut down. Sometimes screenplays get written or- close to full screenplays get written. And this brings us to a little bit of a redundancy from a previous episode from this summer when we did talked you know about, about this one. Yeah, I did know about this one. When we talked about Christopher Nolan, I believe we mentioned this. I brought it up I think during that episode that he was going to do a biopic on Howard Hughes and that that was the plan until Martin Scorsese decided to do the same thing with The Aviator, which ended up becoming a smash hit, phenomenal movie, just tremendous, DiCaprio, wow. And there was then no point. It was just going to be a complete redundancy there of, of Nolan trying to do that. But that is, I think I had read that Nolan said that it was one of, if not his best screenplays that he had written there when he had put together his own Hughes biopic. Like, that idea of the enigma, the the individual enigma that just that Nolan thrives on and, and likes to do movies based on, it makes total sense that he would make something like that related to the enigma that was Howard Hughes. But then, of course, The Aviator was just tremendous, and so that one got scrapped and and shuttled off. And I'm sure that screenplay is sitting around somewhere in the uh, the Nolan vault in a prominent place if if it was fully completed and finished, but. He had plans for that one, and it makes you wonder what his treatment of it would have been, but it's it, it's fascinating sometimes, Dave, and it, that's not the first instance, not the last one either, of directors having the same idea at about the same time. You remember when the, the Steve Jobs movies came out at the same time or about the same time, that, that comes to mind too, but you see that occasionally where a great plan from somebody maybe gets gets put away because somebody else has something similar that's going on. Or I think of like Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove coming out at the same time back in the 60s about nuclear holocaust. Two completely different movies on that subject. One dark comedy, the other a, a very dramatic movie. But yeah, I, I just wonder how would that Nolan Howard Hughes biopic have looked. And I'll give credit to Nolan for saying, oh, Scorsese's going to do one just like, ah, we'll shut it down. Because you don't usually hear about that. Like you just that's said. That's game recognizing game. Yeah, exactly. Right that's exactly yeah. what it, well, I don't want to interfere with that. But how many times you get two movies about the same premise that come out pretty much the same time. Somebody hears and catches wind that so-and-so is working on such and such a movie. Well, we got to come up with something like that. And you get two very similar competing movies. And they almost always come out at the same time, more or less, from one another. But, you know, when did The Aviator come out? Like, oh, 2008? I thought it was 2003. Could have been. Maybe earlier. That's that's 20 years ago. I mean, who's to say after enough time goes by, Nolan might not brush off his script, and after 20 years, you could certainly redo something. It's one thing when you do Spider-Man 3, and then about 15 minutes later, you do The Amazing Spider-Man. The theater popcorn is still warm in the seats where people were watching the Tobey Maguire, now here's Andrew Garfield, but after 20 years or more, yeah. you, he could dust this off. He hadn't cast it yet, but I heard Jim Carrey was this was one of the guys he was circling the Howard Hughes role. Oh man! But this is when he was doing, uh, you know, shortly after the Truman Show. Would have been pretty suitable, I think. Yeah, two thousand four, by the way. Okay, two thousand four. So yeah. you know, it, that was almost twenty years ago. Could he? Could he down the road when he pulls a Quentin Tarantino and says, "I'm going to do one more movie," he might already have it ready to go in a vault somewhere, and just script wise, and start again. Speaking of great auteurs and ideas that never came together, tell me about the Killer Crow spinoff idea for Quentin Tarantino because I never knew that this existed until you wrote it down. I typed it in really quick a little bit earlier and just gave it a brief look over. Explain more about this. So Tarantino, just real quick in the background here, Tarantino has a lot of ideas. And sometimes they make it to the light of day and sometimes they don't. Like Star Trek. Like like getting a Star Trek movie, which, you know, real quick was, you know, there was an episode in the original series that was gangster-esque. 
And apparently that is what this was going to start with, this other universe, so to speak, where people base their civilization based off of a crime novel. And so it was a piece of the action was the name of the episode. Yes. So this would kind of Very, take, very good episode. Yeah, it was a fun one. And this would take a page from that. And, and all these actors are like, oh, I'd totally come back for this. So that was something that was going to happen but didn't happen. So Killer Crow is a spinoff of um, Inglorious Bastards. There was a scene that was scripted but not filmed where Brad Pitt and his crew, while they're doing their Nazi hunting, they run across this platoon of black soldiers that were hunting down other white soldiers that gave them a hard time because there was still a lot of segregation in the time of World War II, obviously. So this unit finally kind of had enough of it, and they were going to hunt down some of their own brethren or others that had given them a hard time in the name of racial segregation, and they were off on their own thing. There was a scene in Inglorious Bastards script but not filmed where you know Brad Pitt and his you know the 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 bear hunters group were going to come across his other group there was going to be this scene with a lot of dialogue and then they were going to go their other ways and they were going to do a spin-off movie with this other group we got to see him real quick well now maybe they'll have the scene kind of worked in from a different angle but they'll do this killer crow and that was what this movie was going to be and it was to the point where it was almost I think it was announced it was going to be Tarantino's next movie but then it never really happened. It didn't really come together, and other things came up, and other things got in the way. But that was going to be a big one, and it was um, it was interesting. And it also got to the point, he's got another one, the Vega team-up. I didn't realize that he was planning on putting those two together. Same universe, Reservoir Dogs, and, and then um, uh, Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Fiction. And that they were going to put those two brothers and their characters together. Because the Vega was, brothers, yeah. Yeah, because um, from... From Reservoir Dogs, it's uh, uh, Michael Madsen. Yeah, Michael and Madsen. John Travolta, and then of course John Travolta. Yeah, I don't think this got too far down the road. He Tarantino has said very little about it, but he's essentially what has come out is I know the premise, and I think it stops at that. I don't think he's ever written a script. He might have a couple of ideas floating around, but I don't think even on paper it really got constructed much more than maybe an outline. And an outline is maybe a paragraph or two or three. Um, that just kind of the very, very, very basic plot strings. They get together, they do this, and this is how it ends. And that's all it is. Then you flesh it out in a script and a screenplay. I don't think it ever got to that length. But I know that uh, Madsen had said he would totally be involved. I don't know if Travolta was interested in it or not. But this was Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, the two Vega brothers coming together. It never happened. I will say, too, that brings to mind one of my favorite, quote-unquote, movie conspiracies that's out there are times when people joke about movies from certain directors being set in the same universe as each other or yeah. that you see threads where it's possible that they exist in the same universe as a previous project that that director had done. I mean, or this fan one, theories. Or fan theories on that. Yeah, this is more than a theory. This is actual reality that they existed in the same the same world, just never ended up crossing over. Well, it's even implied, but never explicitly stated. I mean, it's, it's, it's a non-secret secret that Vega and Vega are brothers. I mean, it's not just that he liked the name. He brought them together. They looked alike. Um, and there's so much stuff behind the scenes that, you know, what's in the suitcase in Pulp Fiction, there's theories and there's this. So, I mean, it's not, it was like a secret, but not a secret. So, and then Tarantino's like, yeah, I'll bring the brothers together. Well, if that's the director and the writer saying, yeah, they're brothers, I'm going to work them into a film together, you know, then, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that was, ooh, got people interested. And it's like, hey, next week we're going to totally get to, oh yeah. And then it never happens. It's such as such life. The Vega Barbecue got called on account of rain. <laughs> yes, it did. It got, yeah, maybe till another day. Maybe, yeah. Probably not. We'll go down maybe one more rabbit hole that I think we could do where you have sequels to movies that were going to do one thing and then one thing or another happened and it all changed or didn't happen at all. Right. We, we touched base briefly on uh, the Spider-Man franchise. Sony was so thrilled to get this. So really interesting backstory here. I think this is part of why Sony is so big on this. This has a link to James Bond if you're not familiar with this. Thunderball was a book written by Ian Fleming that oh, had boy. that had contributions by there Kevin Kevin McClory. They remade it into Never Say Never Again. They were going to remake it a third time right around the year 2000, 1999, called Thunderball 2000, and it didn't happen. So what did happen was behind the scenes, you had uh, James Cameron was working on a Spider-Man script, which would have been under the, I can't remember which banner. Long story, it came to this. 
Sony, who had the partial rights to some of the James Bond elements, and maybe it was 20th Century Fox? Yeah, the elements. Yeah, they had the elements. They finally had a big swap. The Bond producer said, look, we want the rights to anything that you have for Bond that Kevin McClory came up with. We're tired of a threat every few million years. Which included characters and included organizations like Spectre. Yep. So this is why Spectre was not in any of the Bond movies after the late 60s, or maybe early 70s. I think uh, Blofeld showed up a few times. But yeah. the legal problem rose up. You couldn't use those elements because of blah, 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 blah. Well, there became a legal swap. I'll tell you what. We've got the rights to Spider-Man. We will sell that to you, Sony, if you will get us the rights to whatever Bond stuff you had. And long story short, the swap happened. So that was money involved in rights that they could have had with something else was given away. Well, now Sony's got the rights to Spider-Man, and they're going to go. And they immediately started going, and they got Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire, and you had those three Spider-Man movies. They loved them. Now, there were plans for Spider-Man 4. Sam Raimi had it all mapped out. Yeah. He did great things with the first one. He did great things with the second one. By the time they got to Spider-Man 3, now the term studio interference becomes to rise up. And they're like, yeah, we want this, we want this. Look, and it got overstuffed. Yeah. Raimi is proven with two of them now. Just leave me alone. He's got the right formula. And that's what was so frustrating with how Spider-Man 3 played yeah, out. Yeah, let me do my thing. Yeah, if he had just been allowed to do so, it maybe would have been better than the muddled mess that we got then. But that's not what happened. And uh, Spider-Man 3 became a cluster. And there were plans to move forward even after the debacle that was Spider-Man 3 with Spider-Man 4. And according to Sam Raimi, there's different stories going around, but the one that seems to be the most accepted was Sam Raimi said, look, I want a more of a super of a Spider-Man one or two. I don't want to do the third one again. And the studio said, well, no, we've got this. He said, then I walk. And he did. And Sony was not going to take that for an answer, which is why about 20 minutes after that, they rebooted the whole thing with the amazing Spider-Man. And that wasn't all that good. And the electric Spider-Man two wasn't even any better. No. It's finally gotten back on track with the whole MCU thing, and they're doing their own, and across the Spider-Verse, they finally are starting to get it right. But Spider- Spider-Man 4 was going to be other things, and some of the elements that got worked into Spider-Man 3 were originally set up for Spider-Man 4, and they were forcing him to move him around, and yeah. It, it's just such a shame, and we've talked about this before, but it's such a shame because those movies... They they came along at a time where they were able to carve out really their own avenue because the superhero landscape was still pretty sparse at the time, and Spider-Man was a a huge deal. The first two movies oh, were just yeah. such a huge deal. The third one, unfortunately, there's more memes that were produced out of that movie than quality moments, but... It, they they really struck a great chord. They had a serious tone to them. They had lighthearted humor in there too. A lot of great action. They just they hit on a lot of levels and and really had some great themes that really? worked through them. Even in that third movie, as much of a muddled mess as that was, you could see Sam Raimi fighting really hard to fit some excellent themes in there, what he did with Harry Osborne's character in that movie, and just other things like... Aunt May and... Yeah. There was, there was a great, great effort to have some heart and craft put into those movies. And, of course, then studio interference was so disappointing because, yeah, it leaves a project like Spider-Man 4 out there of a what-could-have-been kind of thing that maybe would have set this all on a different kind of course moving forward if the studio just had not gotten so involved and egos hadn't really gone back and forth so much. Here, here, I, I echo everything you just said. We talked real quick about the, the James Bond background where the legal rights were. They were legal rights that also derailed Timothy Dalton, who was James Bond after Roger Moore. He's probably the most Daniel Craig-esque of what had come before. He had done The Living Daylights in 87 and License to Kill in 89. And then there's this big gap. Yeah, and only two films that featured He only two. had the two. There's a big gap, and all of a sudden it's Pierce Brosnan with Goldeneye that came out like six years after the last Bond movie. It's, it's one of the biggest gaps in James Bond at all. Well, what happened? Why wasn't there a third one? They were working on a third one. But Bond again, and I don't think it was necessarily Bond. I think it was Bond-related, but it was more the studios. They got into a legal problem. But there was work being done behind the scenes for a third 007 Timothy Dalton movie. There's little bits and pieces that have come out. I guess the working title was going to be Property of a Lady, which was mentioned in Octopussy, actually. Um, It was 
about a jewel something something. But whatever ultimately happened when Timothy Dalton's contract, which was for we're going to do X number of movies or X number of years, whichever comes first. And after about two, 1994 maybe, the contract had expired and that was it. Dalton walked away and said, I'm not interested in doing more. And they had to start over with, Bal- with Dalton and that became GoldenEye. Then there's none of the plot elements. They just dropped everything that was going to be a part of this movie and just started from scratch with GoldenEye. And it leaves Dalton as a rather strange also ran in the list of guys to play Bond because it was just two films. Neither of them were especially standout. And yet he brought something that was much different from more with the grittier edge that he had. Like you said, a bit of a precursor to what eventually came with Daniel Craig and that he brought in much more notable movies. He was very gritty. He was much more realistic, especially in comparison to his immediate predecessor, Roger Moore, who was very tongue-in-cheek. But even the era that he happened to be in, they only did the two and they were in the late 80s. And you think about what's going on in the world in the late 80s, it's a really interesting time. The Cold War is kind of over. I mean, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is still underway. In fact, that was a big plot point for the first movie. And he teams up with uh, Mujahideen, who now we know as the Taliban not unlike Rambo 3. So he's teaming up with basically Osama bin Laden, honestly, is what the movie's about. And it's kind of weird when you think about that now and you're watching it through the eyes of now from a movie that came out in 87. So it was interesting. He wasn't, you know, getting with the ladies like other Bonds were because there was an AIDS issue on and they wanted to set 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 a message. It was an interesting time. It was different. He was a very different Bond. It was more Connery and Craig esque than what would come before or after with Pierce Brosnan. But there was work on a third movie, but for legal problems, it never really happened. Yeah. Star Wars projects are common ones as well. We have seen this. Boba Fett, Book of Boba Fett, was supposed to be a movie. Yep. Ended up turning into a series that wasn't done all that well. Well, and it became The Mandalorian, really, is what it was. It was going to be Boba Fett movie, and then it became a series. Well, let's not do Boba Fett. Let's do Mandalorian. Yeah. Well, now we got to bring back Boba Fett, and that one kind of got screwed up a little bit. Right. Um, yeah. But there was a whole other idea when George Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney. It had been rumored for years, and depending on who you were talking to, George Lucas would say, yep, I've got an idea for three more movies, episode seven, eight, nine. And then other times he'd say, nope, nope, doesn't exist. And there were lots of books that were released that reflected some of those threads and ideas. Maybe. Maybe. So, I mean, some author came up with it, but did George Lucas sign off on it? Did he say, hey, well, you should probably know about what would come next would be this, this, and this. The Mara Jade character, she's only in those books. She doesn't exist apparently in anything that George Lucas was working on. So whether it's something, and that was a popular character, but will it ever really make it to screen? Good question. Don't have those answers. Right. But what ultimately came out was when George Lucas sold the Lucasfilm, and now they're going to make 7, 8, and 9, they pretty much now, oh my God, they've got this treatment, they're going to finally do it. Well, the powers that be read the general story outline that George Lucas had come up with and said, nope, we're going to do something different. So what exactly George Lucas had written down as far as storyline goes is not what we saw with Ray and Poe and Finn. That all got thrown aside, and they came up with their own thing. And we've talked about this before, so that's a little bit of a debacle, and that's a whole other discussion. But what George Lucas came up with, the only thing he's ever really said about it is it was about going internal and exactly what that means. And I don't know if he's talking more about midi-chlorines with the force. I don't know. It was about – it was. It sounds bizarre. It almost sounds while it's – His a, way of trying to tie off that rather ambiguous – plot elements well suddenly dropped in evidently he'd had this written before he ever did the prequel movies too i mean this was written up long before probably shortly after return of the jedi somewhere in there but then again it's it's hard to get an accurate chronology as to what was written and when it was written and blah 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 so there's only little pieces of it but even since the prequel move or sequel movies came out lucas said yeah i think mine would have been better so clearly they abandoned what george lucas was going to do But what was he going to do? I mean, it's hard to get a straight answer from him. Depending on the day, he'll tell you maybe the truth, maybe something different. But it never really lines up quite accurately from one comment to the next to the next. But then again, it all changes depending on, well, I think I'm going to do this. You know, uh, Saifa Diaz, it all just goes away. And that plot point disappears and eh. 
But what, what could have been? Something did exist on paper that is not anything close to what we did see. So who knows? Yeah, it comes in a lot of forms in, in movies, what could have been kind of things, because, yeah, sometimes it is that screenplay that's been written down, but it's now locked away in the vault. Sometimes it's a finished project that doesn't ever end up seeing the light of day. It, yeah. Sometimes it is with people, and maybe that their career looked like it was going one way and then ultimately was never fully realized for different reasons or never, or maybe fizzled out in different respects. But much like with the movies themselves, you, you kind of, you're kind of left wondering what could have the story have been. Sometimes with those movies that disappoint us a little bit, we go, what could this story have looked like? The same thing goes in real life where it's like, what could this story have looked like or this outcome have been if it had gone a little bit differently or if this person had played this role or all of that? Or maybe it, it's... The, there's a lot of mystery to it that's entertaining, I think, sometimes, yeah. and that's why we've spent a whole episode on this. Or maybe you find out what they were working on and it didn't happen, and as the details come out, you're like, you know what, thank God it didn't happen. Superman Lives comes to mind. Somewhere on YouTube, you can find an evening with Kevin Smith where he at one point was co-written before Tim Burton got involved to write Superman Lives. And all the the things that were laid out for him. I don't want to see him fly. I don't want him in the suit. He's got to, If you can handle the, the Effenheimer bombs that Kevin Smith is known to drop, it is a very interesting story that he will tell. And I will let him tell that story. But having uh, Nicolas Cage looking as non-Superman-esque as he looks, <laughs> even though he does kind of make a cameo later, but that's a whole other story. Um, sometimes it's not a bad thing that things that got started didn't get finished because many things that got started didn't get finished. Eh, maybe they should have just abandoned it at some point. But it's interesting to see and, what could have been that it's just it was, it was going to be and it just wasn't meant to be and it didn't. And sometimes you wonder, what if this had hit the mainstream or been out there? Like the Topher Grace Star Wars cut. <laughs> For example, what if that had gotten a chance to get the movie treatment? In some ways, it's better. Just saying. Have you gotten to see the full thing? I've never watched the whole thing. I have not been able to find it. I had a friend that had it on a bootleg or something. I I, I couldn't say. I can't remember. So janky. Yeah, like a year after you'd heard about it, he got a copy of it somewhere, and I was watching at his place. It's, It's not bad. Topher's pretty good at that. I heard it's I heard it's good. I heard it really ties things off pretty well. It, it was an improvement, but no offense to anybody that did work on the final product. We still love you. That's right. But Topher did good. And we Yes, he did. I from what I've heard. And we love the Bemidji Theater. They are the sponsor for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks on Highway 2, just down from the airport. They've got the $5.50 movie nights on Tuesdays and then Thursdays. If you're involved in the schools in any way as a teacher, as a student, Bring your ID along with you, and you'll get in $6, I believe, for student rights on Thursdays. And you'll get a chance to enjoy the wonderful amenities and the great place to watch a movie that is the Bemidji Theater. There's birthday party packages. There's gift certificates. It's a great spot to go and spend a little time and take in an adventure on the big screen. That's right. Great place to go. So we've got plans for our next episode. We're thinking ahead on that already. We'll, We'll save that in the hopper for a little bit from now. So until next time, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at At the the movies. movies. Whoa.